In part one of my interview with retired attorney, former assistant attorney general, and lifelong abductee Terry Lovelace, we discussed his most harrowing journey after his 1977 abduction at Devil's Den State Park in northwestern Arkansas. The full hour was taken up with his recounting the details of a full-on interrogation and the disturbing aftermath that haunts him to this day. On today's show, a part two that I knew we would have to do right away, Terry goes further into the events that preceded his 1977 event, including the discovery in 2012 of a device mysteriously placed in his leg, the visit to his home by an odd Asian woman who he recalled from his childhood, and the warning she gave him that shook him to the core. We also discuss his time spent with Luis Elizondo of To The Stars Academy, his take on the recent disclosure by the U.S. Navy about the reality of UFOs, or UAPs, and where he feels we're all headed on this very twisted and important journey here on planet Earth. Terry, I am so delighted you agreed to come back on the show to continue our discussion from last week where you gave a most heartfelt and emotional recounting of your amazing and perplexing abduction and the interrogation that followed. That's where we spent the majority of our time. You talked about your separation from whom you call Toby, not his real name, uh, and his subsequent passing, very sad passing. This was your friend and military partner whom you had this abduction encounter with. Now, you, of course, spoke at length about how you were viciously interrogated by this military sergeant who you described as a total intimidator and someone who seemed to know at least part of what went down uh, with both of you and uh, both you and Toby during your encounter. Now, you've discussed the recurring nightmares over the years that you continue uh, to have to this day as part of your life, um, and that's harrowing. But today, I want to pick up on some of these themes. I want to pick up on them. Uh, but I want to specifically go back to how you said all of these memories came flooding back to you and why you were here right now, speaking up about what happened to both you and Toby. So if we can, let's go back to 2012 and what you discovered at that time and how that opened the door to all of these memories. What happened to you in 2012? In 2012, um, I want to make it clear that my decision I should say our decision. My wife and I have been married all our lives. Um, we made the decision that we weren't going to be public about this. We weren't going to share it with uh, trusted neighbors or friends or our children or anyone. Uh, you know, my kids knew, hey, dad had screaming nightmares once and twice a year. Um, but that was it. And... Um, we decided that, you know, it's best because every time we really tried to delve into it and think about it, uh, the nightmares would return. Mm -hmm. So we were we were conditioned like Pavlov's dog. I mean, we just we just let it let it lie. And uh, I I woke up and I had a. Um, what was diagnosed as a Baker's cyst. Uh, a Baker's cyst, of course, has nothing to do with baking. Um, it, it named after a man named, a physician named Baker. Um, but it's, um, it's, uh, it's an inability to place for your, for you to bear weight on your right knee. Your right knee just 
is painful and collapses. And the syndrome is, it's fairly common, not real common, but fairly common. And it always resolves on its own without medication in two weeks. So they gave me some Tylenol, some crutches, told me to go home. And uh, that was the extent of the Baker cyst. And I want to get that up first because people confuse the Baker cyst diagnosis with the foreign material that was found in my, uh, in my body. The two have no, nothing to do whatsoever. What they did do was they, um, they caused the uh, radiographer, the, radio, uh, the x-ray technician, to take a look at my x-ray and come out with a quizzical look and say, you know, something's not right here. Let's do this again. And uh, we did it again. And she called for the radiologist to come down. And a radiologist came down with, uh, with an intern. And uh, she brought a handheld black light. And she said that scar tissue will, quote, fluoresce under a black light. And that anytime you breach the integrity of the human skin, uh, you breach that barrier, anytime you breach that, uh, it's going to leave a scar. It's just not possible to, um, to make an incision that deep to bury that object's object into your leg and have it not leave a scar. And there is no scar. And he was clearly, clearly confounded. And I'm like, Doc, let me ask you, how often is it that you see a, um, a foreign object buried an inch and a half deep in a human knee without there being a corresponding scar? Mm-hmm. And he slumped back in his chair and rubbed his chin and he said, never. He said, I've been doing this for 23 years. I have never seen this happen before. He says, anytime you breach the integrity of that skin, there must be a scar there. Of course, yeah. And I asked him, well, then, doctor, by what means is it been implanted into my leg? And his words, I mean, they hit me like a punch in the face. I remember them with crystal clarity. He said, by means unknown to medical science. Mm. And... Um, that was compelling. That was that, sure. that was compelling. You know, as you're talking about this, Terry, I'm going to put a, an image of uh, a, of what was found on the screen for our audience to see and, and have you continue and, and talk talk about uh, what you call a device. So go ahead, continue. Let me show this to the audience right here. Go ahead. Okay. So. <laughs> I'm not sure which I'm not sure which device you're looking at. Uh, well, this is this is what you sent me. This is an X-ray. I don't know if I'm getting ahead of you here, but uh, this was the X-ray of what was ultimately found in your leg. Is this uh, the? Oh, did I lose you? 
Nope, I'm here. There you go. Okay. <laughs> is, it, is it the florette pattern below my knee or is it the computer chip device above my knee? Oh, boy. Because we have two different objects to choose from. Okay. I'm going to see if I can pull up the image for myself to have a look at here. And I can tell you, forgive us, audience, we're obviously pre-recording this, so I'm going to be slipping in the image for you all to see uh, a bit later. So as we speak, what I'm looking at, this is, of course, black and white. This looks to be a square, as I'm looking at it, uh, some sort of a square device. It looks like it's being suspended by some strings or there's, it looks like there's some wires at the top, but at the bottom, yeah. it's a square something that's object. about the size of a of your small fingernail mm -hmm. and um hmm. what it does uh nobody knows uh, right, i had right. uh friends in the intelligence community uh who has who have the largest collection of explosive devices meaning the largest collection of electronic devices used to set off explosive devices so they have all the wiring boards all the all the little bitty pieces and bits and and uh, transistors and resistors and capacitors and they've got a copy of every single one of them mm -hmm. in their database they took this object and it does not exist in their database Okay. So we're clear on what we're talking about here now. That was the first thing I wanted to say in, in terms of how I described it to you. Yes. Okay. All right. Very good. Okay. So the radiologist basically confounded says this is, was put here or, you know, ba based on the fact that there was no breach of the skin, no scar, how it was put there is unknown to medical science at this point. Yep. This so word. And it, at that point, Terry, what, what were your thoughts? What, what came to mind? Uh, when he said that, when he saw, when he placed that x-ray on that view box, and I saw my eyes focused on that computer-like chip-like device, I felt just stunned, absolutely stunned. Um, and I don't know why. And, and when he said, when I asked him, doctor, how often is it? And I was hoping he would say, oh, you know, you see something like this once in uh, a thousand or once in 10,000 or once in 10 million, I'd be happy with. <laughs> uh, but when I asked him, how often do you see this happen? And he said, never, not in 23 years. Hmm. Um, that really, really changed the course of my life because I had no intention of telling uh, anyone about this. Um, I thought it, I, 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 they build it somehow. ET can build into your mind a severe sense of guilt. And that's what I felt. I felt this overwhelming guilt if I shared this with anyone. So my wife and I were the only two that spoke about it. Mm -hmm. 
So I'm going to just say again, I'm assuming this is the case, uh, Terry, but when this device was discovered, would it be fair to say that heretofore, prior to that, did you not know it was there, number one? But, well, let me have you answer that first. Prior to it showing up on the x-ray, were you aware that something was inside of you? You could not have chosen a better a better question. Um, in 1977, I had the event. And then in 1990, pardon me, in 1979, two years later, I separated from military service. I finished my enlistment. And uh, I found that, you know, I didn't have the rigors of military life like I had. Uh, benign and as, you know, low intensity as they are, uh, at least in the Air Force, I, I found myself gaining weight. So to control my weight, I started running. And, you know, this is interesting to think about. Running was a brand new concept. It really was. I mean, unless you saw someone look through old movies, look through photographs, look through, um, oh gosh, any type of media before about 1962 or three. And if you see somebody running, they're either running on an athletic field or they're running from someone. So running was actually a new, a new concept. And uh, every time I noticed that every time I hit the two-mile mark in my run, without exception, every single time, um, I had a numb, I called it my numb spot. You know, what else are you going to call it? My numb spot. My numb spot was about the size of a half dollar or, or a Canadian toonie. Um, and it was just above my right knee and an inch lateral toward the right. And I saw that x-ray and it stunned me because I knew for 40 years I've been running with this numb spot, which my doctor assured me was, eh, it's probably a systemic reaction of some kind. I wouldn't worry about it. So I didn't worry about it. But, but boy, when, 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 when I saw that x-ray, it all just hit home. Mm -hmm. okay. the, the, the thought that these things put their hands on me really, really um, impacted me in a major way. Mm -hmm. So that, that brings me to, the, to my next question, which I think you just answered, and that is once the device was discovered or showed up on x-ray, you knew what it was related to without a shadow of a doubt. Right. Without a shadow of a doubt. Okay. Okay. Is this device still in you? It is not. Okay. Most common question I get. Well, let me see. The most common questions I get is, well, is it still there? And how, why is it, why is it not there? How did it get removed? I'll let you answer them. <laughs> if you can. <laughs> I'm going to kind of cut to the chase okay. here. And uh, my first thought when I saw that x-ray was, I want this thing out of my leg now, today. And I talked to my doctor, and my doctor said, well, I'll 
get you hooked up with a surgeon. Uh, surgeon's like, hey, that's pretty cool looking. I've never seen anything like that. Yeah, let's get that out of you. He says, we'll set you up with a surgical appointment through the clinic. And uh, he says, we'll get it done for you as quick as we can. And I laid out some ground rules. And they were that I wanted someone uh, who happened to be a nurse and a friend of mine who knew how to follow uh, surgical uh, procedure to be there in person and establish a chain of custody so that uh, there could be no accusations of swapping um, specimens. I wanted to make sure that the validity of whatever they took out of my leg was preserved. And I got that all approved. And the doc said, okay, all you need now is your cardiac clearance letter. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went to the doctor and I'd had a stroke, pardon me, I'd had a heart attack in 2005 and uh, suffered some heart damage from that. And the doc sat down to me and he says, what you have is very much akin to having uh, a shrapnel wound removed that's not bothering you or having a surgical, uh, a plastic surgery procedure. He says, it's what we call in surgery a non, um, a non-therapeutic procedure. In other words, the benefit, there is no benefit, but there's a, there are risks. And he says, because you've had a heart attack and because you've had these odd instances here, he says, I, I can't clear you for surgery. Hmm. And I was kind of upset. And I, uh, I went and I spoke with two other surgeons, both VA surgeons. And they said, they told me the exact same thing. And then I thought, all right, I'll go outside the government and speak to someone who's totally disassociated with the United States military. And the guy sat down and said, look, love to give you a clearance letter, but that liability would fall on me. If I said that you were sturdy enough and healthy enough to have that removed without there being negative consequences, I'd write you the letter today. But he said the risk outweigh the benefit. Mm -hmm. And he says, I just can't do it. And he says, the standard of care recognized in the United States is going to be the same. Nobody's, no, nobody's going to give you a clearance letter to remove something from your body that's bizarre, but causing you no problems. So, I, after several thousand dollars and uh, a lot of time and a lot of frustration, I ended up with the uh, realization that nobody was going to take this thing out for me. Hmm. And that was confounding. And I told my wife, I said, you know what, I happened to, when I worked at, in the South Pacific, I became friends with a surgeon who works for St. Luke's Hospital 
uh, in the Philippines. It's a magnificent hospital. I would have, I would have any procedure in the world done there. I, I, they, they are, they're definitely there. If we're third world, they're fourth world. They are, <laughs> they are brilliant. It's, 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 it's an amazing facility. You would never, you would think of India as being a third world country, but by God, they are, they are on the leading edge of medicine. Mm-hmm. And I made an appointment um, through a friend to talk to them about removing the device for me. And that night, I had a dream. Now, stop me if I've told you this already. No, nope, keep going. I don't think we've heard this. I certainly haven't. <laughs> Continue. My wife and I went out and saw a movie, nothing scary, something benign, came home, did the usual routine, locked up the house, set the alarm, had a glass of wine, went to bed, um, you know, put the cat to bed, you know, set the alarm, (laughs) we're we're all set to go to sleep, and we're out, you know, boom, like a light, and... It seemed no more than I blinked. It, it, it didn't even seem like I closed my eyes. It seemed like I blinked. And I found myself sitting bolt upright in my living room chair, uh, stunned, thinking, why am I sitting in my living room chair? Huh. And there's an odd electric charge in, this, in the air with that uh, uh, that smell that you get in the air after a thunderstorm, you know, it's it's pleasant. It's kind of um, ozone-like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I experienced that. I I glanced around. I felt no anxiety, no fear whatsoever. I thought I'm going to call for Sheila, and then I thought, wait a minute, they got that covered. You know, that's not going to do any good. And I just sat back to see what was going to happen. As if, and as I'm scanning the room, directly, and this happens in a matter of seconds, I'm scanning the room, and in the chair seated directly across from me is a petite Asian woman. Okay, now we're getting into the Asian woman. I'm so glad you're segueing into this. Okay, let's do it. Let me She's be quiet. She's all or less. She is uh, wearing sturdy, uh, thick heels like uh, nurses would wear, but the shoes are black, and they're obviously designed to give her a couple inches of height. She's wearing like a black polyester kind of kind of uh, uh, baggy-legged uh, pants and a uh, a black shirt. Uh, a black uh, black blouse with extremely long fingers, and they're hiding four long fingers that peek out through the end. Back up for a second. She had four long fingers. You're saying? That's what I could see. And she hiding. Pulled... Repeat that again, Terry. I'm trying to picture this. Hiding. Yes. She was well. First of all, she was seated. You have to imagine her posture. She's seated in a non-threatening posture, 
with, uh, I think, one hand on the on her lap and one hand on the side of the chair. And I could see that where her wrists were, her wrist um, meant that her fingers were longer than human fingers, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I could see uh, <laughs> the first two joints, and they were very long, and each joint of her finger appeared to be maybe two inches long. I didn't see any nail polish or any kind of cosmetics. I didn't see any jewelry of any kind. Just that red scarf around her neck to hide the the thinness of her neck. Uh, But this blouse was intentionally bought uh, too long uh, to hide her, or, or maybe it was specially made, to hide her four long fingers and help or hide or disguise them, make them less apparent unless you really, really study her. I call her, in the book, I call her Betty. And the reason I call her Betty is because she had a bulbous back to her head and a standard commercial cheap wig, all in black, sat askew on top of her head and it looked all the world like Betty Rubble. (laughs) And it amused me. Again, I had no fear whatsoever. But I learned something and it's important and that is that they read our minds and we can read theirs if they want us to. Uh, She shot back immediately, and I heard her with crystal clarity in my head, in plain English, uh, it was a a feminine voice uh, without without, uh, discernible accent of any kind, and she says, so you don't like my wig? (laughs) (laughs) And... I didn't even, I didn't speak. I, I knew I didn't have to. I looked at her and I said, I'm very sorry. <laughs> it looked very nice. Because I'm a, I'm a polite guy. I felt obligated to respond to her. And all the while, I have to get, I can get a little silly. This is one of those silly moments of in something so serious. So let me just try to get my, my composure here. In all of this, this dialogue going on, you're noticing her appearance. Is there a part of you, Terry, at that moment going, what the heck is this odd woman doing in my house and how did she get here? We're getting to that. Okay. (laughs) First of all, um, I realized that we were communicating telepathically. Secondly, I realized the familiarity of it. And I realized the familiarity of her. (laughs) And when I was a child, anywhere from four to six, she was the one that used to come and get me or take me with these monkey men that, that, that used to abduct me when I was a child. Which we want to talk about. Yes, we'll get to that. And we would sit in this uh, playroom that had a like a plastic floor and um, 
we'd sit there and uh, and uh, and play. But she had us play these odd geometric games where you assemble, you know, and form geometric patterns. And then she would make it more complicated by adding colors and then by adding numerals. And she was assessing each and every one of us. And if we all did something good, she would reward us by sliding a, a, um, a panel that slid along the side of the, uh, of the craft that we were in. And we were in a very large craft. And uh, we had a beautiful, beautiful view of a trillion stars. Absolutely the most stunning thing I'd ever seen in my life. Never seen anything like it before or since. And I remember thinking, which is like speaking aloud, why aren't the stars twinkling? Why aren't the stars twinkling? And uh, somebody else in the room was thinking, Oh, it's not real. It's a, it's a, it's a movie. That's why they're not, they're not uh, twinkling. And she says, no, they don't twinkle. She told us all at once. She says, they don't twinkle because in the air, there's or in the sky, high above the earth, there's no air. That's right. That's what I was thinking. Right. And she says that air causes ripples like water in a pool and she explained it to us in kid terms that we could understand and uh then we were like oh i get it and she said well you've all done very well and uh you know and i'm very proud of each and every one of you and we had a couple private conversations that were very interesting um one about, uh, I'll make this quick. I know time is of the essence. Yeah, no, I want to, I'm going to have us go back, but go ahead and tell that story. And then I want to, I want to take us, go, go through this again real quick. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, one day, um, we were talking about something or laughing. We were joking or something. And uh, she asked me in a serious tone of voice, well, where do your thoughts come from? And like, a, like any like a six-year-old, I'm like, oh, I don't know, my stomach? <laughs> and she pokes me in the stomach and says, so your thoughts come from your belly? Think about it. Where do your thoughts come from? And I said, I don't know. And she showed me, this sounds gross at first, uh, but it wasn't. It was fascinating. She showed me from above my, from above where we sat, Indian leg across from one another. She showed me the inside of my skull. The inside of your skull? The inside of my skull. Like I was looking at a 3D uh, imaging, uh, you know, not not x-ray, not not, uh, just a a 3D image of the inside of my brain. Mm -hmm. And I could see vessels pumping blood, uh, but it it didn't gross me out or weird me out, but it fascinated the hell out of me. And she says, do you see this? And she pointed to a thing that looked like a bean 
And she says, that is where your thoughts come from. And that's all I remember of that conversation. And this is when you were a child, this particular conversation. Yes, okay. I was four or five years old. Okay, now listen, I think at this point, for the benefit of our audience, Terry, I think I need to kind of uh, make sure that everyone is kind of following along because we've brought, we've just put in a lot of different things here. We started with talking about the discovery of this device. My question for you is, is the device still there? This prompted you to talk about the Asian woman, which I wanted to get to because I was familiar, somewhat familiar with this story. Um, from there, you had a recollection of knowing her as a child being on a craft. So now we're bringing in this whole element of you're a childhood experiencer. This abduction scenario with you and Toby in 1977 was not the beginning of your abduction experiences. It began as a child. Um, so I, for the audience, for the sake of the audience, this is where we've gone because it's, I'm sure you've, you, you've all, my journeyers are very, very intelligent and put the, these things together. But just in case for those that are thinking this is all out of context, it's not. And I want to, I want to bring this sort of even more together and correlate the childhood experiences with the abduction uh, uh, story of 1977 and how this may all relate. Now, before we go too far off track, because yes, I do have to watch the time here. We still have a little bit of time. We have, we have enough time, I think, to get this in and, and try to connect again some dots. But at what point, let's take you back to the living room, the Asian woman that's sitting there. You have a recollection of who she is. Yes. How did... Where, how does she relate to the device eventually not being there in your leg? Okay, I'll make, I'll make this succinct. The woman I called Sue, and the reason that I called her Sue back when I was a tiny child was there was an Asian woman in our neighborhood we all called Sue. And she was very kind to us, and she was um, about, about her age, uh, she appeared to be a forty-year-old. Uh, oh, you know, forty is old whenever you're six. You know, she appeared to be a forty-year-old uh, Asian woman. And the next time I saw her, she had not aged a day. But I, I'll get into that. So I, I referred to her as Sue. And um, this is different than Betty now, right? <laughs> Just so we can be Betty, clear. Betty and Sue are one and the same. Okay. And that was a revelation that I made in 2017. She had on oversized sunglasses as she sat in my living room. And one of the first few things I said was, my God, I wish she'd remove those glasses. And on command, like on cue, she reached up removed them and smiled at me. What did her I I'm sorry, go ahead. I knew that that was the same person and she had not aged a day. Everything seemed to be enlarged on her for some reason, which I find interesting. And yet it seems somewhat of a familiar scenario of perhaps entities trying to disguise themselves uh, uh, or trying to fit in, but not quite knowing how to do it. Oversized sunglasses, oversized wig, Oversized shirt. Yeah, you know, and if if this woman were to walk through the downtown streets of, uh, you know, Hong Kong, New York, Dallas, 
uh, San Francisco. I doubt she draws second look. I really do. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot of odd people in those big One cities. <laughs> so nothing really <laughs> shocks anyone anymore. But nonetheless. Okay, Terry, let's get back to the device. Yes. Give, give me the short sheet, man. What happened with the device and how does she have something to do with that? She warned me not to speak about the device that her, our government, my government, does not want that item to fall into the hands of terrestrial scientists. Those are her words, exact words. She says, our host, meaning her boss, really don't care. But the United States government cares deeply and does not want that to be removed. And if, if uh, you continue in this vein to speak about these things, they will be removed. Uh, and they'll be removed by my people, her hosts, in the middle of the night. It'll cause you no harm. You'll never know what happened. And it'll be absolutely painless. Well, I'll tell you, three weeks later, I woke up, and I was in the biggest pain of my life, I got to tell you. It felt like somebody hit me with a baseball bat at the top of both of my thighs. And uh, I sat up in bed, and the first words out of my wife was, "What?" after she asked me, you know, what is wrong? And I said, I think they came and they got their merchandise last night. And she says, you're kidding me. And I'm like, no, I'm, I, 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 I'm not. I think they're gone. I they? Think it, Was there more than one? Well, uh, she told me there were. And I hadn't had the chance, the opportunity to get the second x-ray. This is just a couple weeks later. And there's a lot going on. And I am delighted to have an x-ray showing that this thing is there, and I went and I, I told you how I, I sought out a, um, I sought out an x-ray, went to, went to find an x-ray. Where do you go when you want to find somebody to x-ray your leg? Well, you don't do it on your own. It takes a doctor's um, a slip, a doctor's prescription, if you will. So I spent two, two really frustrating days going to doctor's offices, clinics, sitting in waiting rooms, waiting and waiting. And finally, I went to this um, chiropractor's office and I thought, you know what? Who looks at 100 chiropractor? Who looks at 100 x-rays a week? A chiropractor, right? If there's anything out of place, he's going to see it. Mm-hmm. So. I made an x-ray, pardon me, I made a photocopy of the x-rays showing the objects above and the objects below my knee, and I put them in a manila folder, and I took them with me, and I didn't have an appointment, and it was a Saturday, and I sat, and I sat, and I sat for an hour and a half, and he says, sorry to keep you waiting, step into my office, what, what, where do you hurt? And I sat on the edge of his bed, and I said, well, doctor, I really don't have um, traditional, uh, you know, neuropathic pain or pain associated with back injury. What I have is what feels like blunt force trauma to my 
upper legs. And uh, he said, okay, and who hit you or were you in a car accident? And I said, no, 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 you, you, you missed the point. Uh, these wires and this, this metallic device was installed into my leg by aliens. You told they, him that. I told him that. And they came and they took them out last night. Now, he's completely convinced I'm an absolute lunatic. Well, of course. And he picks me up. He picks me up off of the, the uh, exam table by the arm and escorts me out the front door. And as we're walking out the front door, I said, look, I know this is hard to believe, but, but before we part friends, would you please just take four seconds and look at this? And he took four seconds and he looked at those x-rays and he stopped. And he said, where'd you get these? I said, those are my legs. And he says, come on back. We'll talk for a second. We went back to his room. He locked the door to his office. His phone's ringing. People are knocking at the door. And he says, well, let me examine your legs up at the top. And he did. And he says, um, what makes you think that these objects that are clearly here now are gone? And I said, well, I don't, I don't know for certain that they are, but I was warned that if I continued to speak about them, they would be retrieved by the entities that planted them there. He said, I'm going to write you a script for an x-ray. I'll pay for it as long as you never use my name and never use the name of my clinic. Uh, and he says, get the x-rays, bring them back here immediately. And he says, I'll make sure they get you through right away. Now, this guy, this guy had some experience. This guy. Yes, I would say so. I happened on to somebody who, who knew what was going on. And I, I went, I got my x-rays, and uh, I'm on the way to his office, and I um, looked up, the, held him up to the window of the car, and you could see clearly that the uh, computer chip was gone, no longer there. Oh, it, uh, really? Okay. Really. And, and, and I, have, I have all of the original x-rays. And the um, uh, images below my knee that showed the uh, floral pattern-like device, those are all still there. Now, you and didn't it, send that to me. Do you, have a, do you have something that you can send that I can slip into the show and show our audience? Sure, I sure can. Okay, when you have a chance, when we get off the air, we can do that, because I'd like for them to see that. I'd like to see that myself. Let, yes. let, let's do this, because we I'm looking at this clock, and we only have about 15 minutes left, Terry, and we still have a ways to go. So we've, and again, my apologies to you, and my apologies to the audience, because it, the biggest challenge in the world is when you're trying to tell a story of such depth and shove it within a designated period of time, which we know full well we can't do, and give it the time that it deserves. But I want to still try. What I really want people to do, obviously, is go out and get Incident at Devil's Den so you can get the full story. This this is, I would call this more than a teaser, but the perfect, uh, enough to whet your appetite to really know this full story. Uh, but in the interest of time, Terry, I, I want to keep this moving along a bit. Now, because every single aspect of your story 
the discovery of the device, the Asian woman connects to childhood experiences that we still have not really gotten into. And I do want to touch on it to this chiropractor who obviously this struck a chord to say the least, uh, you know, who is this person? Uh, where do we go here? Let's, let's go back to this Asian woman for a moment. Something's telling me to stay on that. And the reason why I want to bring that up, you and I have talked offline about this, the inexplicable appearance of what has been described as a slight, slight in stature woman who looks to be of Asian descent showing up in not just your story and your encounter, but when I when I heard this, I almost the hairs on my arm went up when I first heard this part of your story, because I personally know someone I'm not going to go into their story, but it has similar features, inexplicable, very, very strange experience in a park. Eight small Asian woman shows up, disappears right in front of his face. The story has all the makings of the, the same elements of strangeness. And when you and I spoke uh, about a week or so ago offline, you had said that you have heard of this same persona showing up in these sorts of things uh, with other people, right? Is this some sort of an archetype we're, we're talking about here? Is this an archetype, a screen memory, both? What are we talking about? It, the back of my book leaves an address and says, if you've had a weird experience, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a therapist, but if you'd like to share, call me. I have dozens of people who described this woman, but not only described her physical appearances in my book, but her gait, uh, her, her smile, her all these things that were unique to her, and she has more than one black wig, <laughs> and... Uh, uh, there are either many of her, maybe as clones, uh, or there, there is, there is surely one, and uh, and she gets around. And I wish I knew her real, true agenda. God, I wish I knew that. I'm sure I do too, and I'm sure everyone that seems to have encountered her or someone that fits that description is wanting to know. You know, what what is this? You know, we can get into the to the, the, the psychology of, you know, uh, or the psyche and how the psyche creates. I, the first term that came to mind, Terry, when I heard of this woman and then compared it to the story that I had personally uh, been told was an archetype, some sort of image that comes out in not necessarily the collective, but certainly more than one as this particular persona that seems to be wise and certainly very cryptic and mysterious that could be a mask for something or someone else that represents a larger entity or maybe multiple entities. Didn't you tell me, or not me, but it, perhaps it was the interview with Carrie Cassidy that I had heard that I, uh, I I'm going to again, link to this episode that she said something to you at some point that was incredibly um, jarring and I can't recall what it is. It was it was really just kind of a watershed moment, really heavy. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? I know exactly what you're talking okay. about. If you could maybe tell us what that what that is. Sure. sure, it's five short words. She was talking about how dangerous it is because I know things, but I can't discern 
and that was her word, I can't discern what's important from what's just benign and, and of not, not of any importance. And she said that if you continue to speak openly, your government will kill you. When was this that she told you this? How long ago was this? This was this would have been October. Uh, I forget the exact date. Third week in October, 2017. Three weeks before I had the X-ray removed. Okay. Or pardon me, the the foreign object removed from my body. The uh, uh, computer chip removed. Mm-hmm. She said it with a serious tone to her voice, and. Um, it frightened me. It, it, well, of it course. And it made me want to assemble all this and burn it. Uh, I had another experience I'll have to briefly tell you about. Okay, briefly. <laughs> briefly, very briefly, I promise. Um, five months previously, I got up in the middle of the night. I never sleepwalk. I got up in the middle of the night. I took my uh, files and my uh, my little uh, DVDs, the disc. I took all of this material, along with some irreplaceable um, uh, images, took them into my backyard, put them in my barbecue grill, sprayed them down with barbecue saw with uh, lighter fluid and threw a match in with a stack of newspaper on top just to make sure and uh, stood out there in the middle of the night and burned these documents. And I have no memory of this whatsoever. My neighbor, Ray, you know, comes around and says, hey man, it's a little late for a barbecue, don't you think? <laughs> mm-hmm. And he says, all I did was smile and wave and what and time was it again? About? About 3 a.m. 3 a.m. Hmm. Hmm. Came back to bed that night, woke up in the morning. My wife's like, why do you, why do you smell like burnt newspaper? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. Because really, I didn't know. Uh, all I can say is my wife, God bless her, was prudent enough to, we have several computers, to periodically back up everything that I was doing secretly. And uh, had she not done that, I would have lost two years worth of work Mm -hmm. and probably not felt like returning to it. Um, But she salvaged the entire project because without her, I'd been gone. This project is the book, correct? Is now the book. It's the book. Okay. Culmination of, uh, culminated into the book. I see. Okay. Oh boy, man. Okay. I'm going to cut to this. Thank you for for sharing yet another element to this multifaceted drama that's still unfolding. And I'm going to see if I can get this in a couple of things. I want, we're going to have to forfeit talking more about your childhood experiences this obviously won't be the last time you're on this show. I think you know that at this point. Uh, and I, I think that could warrant its own episode, just talking about that big, big, big dot connecting exercise here. 
But what I want to do for the remainder of this show, which is about 10 minutes, maybe able to go a couple of minutes, stretch it a couple of minutes, is I want to talk about some of the things very, very briefly, if you could give us the cliff notes of what has been happening, we're going to bring it all the way to, to present day. Now, 2017 is not that long ago. <clears throat> about two years later, we're in 2019, almost into 2020. You have had a couple of more inexplicable experiences happening with you, as well as other people. I'm aware of, you know, I have a bit of the backstory because of the, a lot of the people that I talk to on a regular basis. These are some people that you know. But tell me what's going on right now. And I want you to connect it, if you can, at all, to what may be happening in terms of the recent news that the U.S. Navy, uh, uh, the, the U.S. Navy has been in the news, let's just say, having to do with what they're now or what they've been referring to as UAPs. And they're admitting uh, that they don't know what they are. It's come, it's come back into the news. Let's oh, see if there's a no. connection here. I'll say this. I told at least a dozen people uh, who are doubters, I'll just call them doubters, uh, I told them just uh, watch the news, watch the news for the next three weeks, it's coming, you'll see it. And, uh, and it came, and when the United States Navy, the United States Navy, uh, I'm, a, I'm a military person, so uh, I know a little bit about chain of command, and I know for a fact that the United States Navy does not allow uh, people of that rank to come out and make uh, statements. That's done by uh, Department of Defense uh, people. And I think the government wants us to know that these items were disclosed. <laughs> is I'm that sorry. your cat in the back? I'm sorry, I've got to. Is your cat in the background saying, Terry, you're talking too much, shut up. You're spilling the beans. That is the loudest cat and the loudest clock I have ever heard. <laughs> I can stop the clock. I, you should have told me that 40 minutes ago. That people, I hope it's, we love clocks, I think, and the ticking is nostalgic, but I hope it's not driving everyone crazy. Stop that ticking. <laughs> with the 10 minutes we have left five seconds I'll feed this cat she'll be out of my hair <laughs> you gotta love it journey as well well Terry is stopping the clock and feeding the cat and you know you get I, I suppose and I'm talking to you out there in the audience as you know, this is a heavy discussion. This is part two. If you haven't heard part one, I absolutely urge you to go back and listen to it in its entirety. Uh, but when you have something that's this heavy, emotionally, uh, psychologically, you, you got to have, I don't know, maybe it's universe that just comes in and injects a little bit of, you know, lightheartedness into it. Uh, because we have had a couple of chuckles between, you know, uh, Betty Rubble, and <laughs> between Betty Rubble and the cat meowing and the clock ticking. I got to tell you, Universe is saying, take it down a notch, guys. It's, it's not that severe. You can you can lighten it up a little bit because this is heavy. It is heavy stuff. Okay, <laughs> it is. It is. It is. It's very heavy. So let's let's continue with. Um, Let's bring it back into to focus here, and let's talk about. Uh, uh, oh, your your thought about this this uh, admonition of the Navy, and this is a serious thing because you know how this works typically. Yes, I've had a recur. I call it a recurrent 
obsessive thought um, that the government, the government's pretty broad term, um, you know, the U.S., the, the Pentagon and the Navy, the Army, those are elements of the military. Uh, there's another branch of the government called the executive branch that um, needs to be the ones to come forward and say um, these things are real and we don't know what they are. And I think that's the actual case. I really do. I don't think that it's some secret project. I don't think they have a damn clue. Mm -hmm. I, they are absolutely as confounded as we are. I think that we are defenseless, that if they wanted to annihilate us, we would be carbon tomorrow. Um, and I think that they have ascended, you know, the, the ladder of, uh, of evolution uh, I know there's some of you that don't believe in evolution. I'm a firm believer myself, but just think of it as the passage of time if you, if you don't believe in evolution. Uh, over the passage of time, we grow and learn more as human beings. And um, they've been around longer than we've been around. And for that fact, they know way more than we know. And I think they have taken an arm's length uh, approach to us. They don't want to get too close to us. They don't want to be put into a position of having to decide, do we side with the West, do we side with the East? Um, I had a, I'll call it a vision. Uh, because I'd never had one before. And I had it on the uh, trip that I made to South Dakota. And I had it about 3 o'clock in the morning uh, outside a teepee in this beautiful wilderness. And it said that, and when I say it said, could have just been a thought crossed my mind, but it was unusual. And the just of the story is this, that when you learn to think globally instead of regionally, you as a species can ascend as one, as you can ascend as, as one species, you know, not a fractured parts of humanity. And I love this line. I was told you can stop building walls and start building fences. Hmm. And there's no reason for people to be hungry. There's no reason for people to be. Um, it was just a very typical uh, positive um, uh, uh, message. But boy, it sure made an impression on me. Mm -hmm. The way it was delivered and how it came in. The way it was delivered, I was sitting on the edge of, the, of, a, of a hay cart, uh, 3 o'clock in the morning, and uh, beautiful, beautiful night in the southern hemisphere, or northern hemisphere, rather, 
with uh, this nice cool breeze blowing and you could smell the scent of the sage in the air and there was something very mystical and very magical about being there and uh, I think that uh, you know Yvonne Whitley James Lowe uh, I could go on and on mm. uh, I think we were all there for a reason I don't think we were there to present to one another. We know our stories. Mm-hmm. I know what event you're talking about or what gathering. I had just been talking to uh, to Jim Lowe about uh, just before he left to go. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so let's connect this back. Thank you for sharing that. That's beautiful perennial wisdom, I think, in terms of the message that you received in that very indigenous, pristine environment. But what I want to bring this back to is assuming the, 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 that sentiment perhaps came from a more evolved aspect of intelligence, non-human intelligence. What has been going on recently with you? We're gonna, I can see we're going to go a few minutes over, just a few. Give me a snapshot how you think it may connect to the news that just came out. Because the, the reason why, and I don't want now you know about leading, <laughs> leading questions, right, as an attorney yourself, I don't yes. want this to be a leading question, but <clears throat> at the same time, Terry, I have this sense that whenever these stories come out in mainstream news, as me- though they're the mo- more most mechanistic of this whole broad field we call ufology, which includes, of course, the intelligence behind the craft that they're, they're that they're speculating about, um, mm-hmm. that there's something that's pushing them. In terms of timing, now, of course, we had the two, uh, 2017 revelation, uh, the, the initial revelation of, the, of these uh, this footage with the, the famous Tic Tac UFO, et cetera, at Al. The audience is well aware at this point. But here we go again. And now there's a little bit more of an admission. I have always felt a deep sense that something is driving the timing of this. Could they be trying to get ahead of it? And when I say that, I mean the intelligence itself. My thought, and this is just a thought that crossed my mind, could this non-human intelligence be saying, okay, governments, plural, since you're the quote authorities here, you either start to drop this bomb or we're going to do it. And when we do it, there will be absolutely no uh, discrepancy in what's being said here. Is something that they may be aware of pushing them, even though they're still soft peddling it, there's a lot more, and maybe you can talk about Luis Elizondo, who you not so long ago met with. I know you, you cannot divulge what everything that was talked about, but I want you to bring that in as well. I put I a lot in there, but go ahead, tackle that in the last few minutes that we have. Talk about another person who... Um is uh, uh, deeply military, deeply intelligence uh, involved person who um, who told me some things that are just unbelievable, just absolutely unbelievable. But I believe him. And uh, there are certain things that he can show me physical evidence wise, certain things he can tell me that validate his story. So this man is telling the truth. I, 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 I have no doubt of that. Uh, and and I'm, I'm, I'm very doubtful. I, I, don't, I don't believe every story that crosses my mind that, that the planet Mars, once upon a time, was in a very similar conundrum that you and I find ourselves in. 
uh, a division, an inability to join together as one common species, um, and other problems of uh, the the problem that he expressed was the division between the have and the have-nots. And boy, I couldn't agree with that more. You know, we, we have all these people that with our, the, that have billions, and we have all these people that don't have, don't have a place to lay their head to sleep. And that's just wrong. Of course it is. And, um, so with that being said, he said, that's the way it was on Mars. And there were two devices detonated and you may have heard this before two devices were detonated one on either side of Mars and those devices were thermonuclear in, in, in uh, nature and uh, very few escaped uh, and the few that escaped may be us uh, so here we are again when are we going to learn our lesson? When are, when are, when are, when are, when are we going to raise our consciousness and, and you know embrace goodness and ability and and uh, and uh, help one another? Right. So are you are you are you insinuating, Terry, that what we're we may be getting in terms of I'm still going to call it the drip drip, coupled with some of the anecdotal experiences that you and others like you have been having all that put together that there may be something on the horizon here that could threaten us in that way again i don't want to ask a leading question but perhaps it is is that what you're getting to that's exactly what i'm getting to okay i'm getting to i'm getting to the point of the exercise is this is that um we could be placing ourselves in harm's way and unless we change um, you know and I know there are so many people absorbed with so much nonsense you know they're 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 so absorbed with um, oh what's her name the lady I see on TV I can't stand uh, just my personal opinion um, oh don't mention her name we don't like to do that but I get it there are a lot of those people <laughs> Yeah. There's tons. You know, there, there are just... Minutia. Yeah, minutia that we're, yeah. we're involved in for entertainment purposes. Correct. And there's so many things that we could be doing, you know. Right. You know, I, I asked my, my, my grandson, you know, uh, pick up a book, read a book with me, you know. Let's talk about it, you know. And he does that. We do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And all of us need to do that and sure. you know we live in a generation probably three generations now where the television set is the babysitter and is the um, is the provider of uh, education before you know formalized education in, ten- in kindergarten absolutely no question about that well that's an entire that's a discussion in and of itself Isn't- so we're heading toward, we're barreling down the path. We, I think many of us are sensing that, or some of us are maybe getting some intelligence about it, and it, it's still not too late. We're going to keep this glass half full. However, we need to be uh, cognizant of what all that's going on around us. Tell us briefly about your visit with Louis Elizondo. And I do believe it's on the record that he did come to visit you. Is that correct? He did. 
Luis Elizondo um, and I had several conversations along with Tom DeLong and uh, Hal Putoff and a, a couple of others. And, uh, and I think they were assessing my uh, 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 sincerity. And um, Lou uh, called me up one day and uh, we had a nice long discussion on the phone and he says, I'm in a hurry, uh, you know, I don't have much time. My time is just really overextended with what I have to do. Would you have time to meet with me? And I said, sure, no problem. And, um, and he says, you know, we'd like to film you for the show. Uh, and I said, sure, that'd be no problem. Incidentally, I might want to mention, uh, and I didn't even think of this till afterwards, he never once mentioned compensation, and I never once inquired. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't even on the agenda. It was just, you know, this is important stuff. Let's do this. And uh, he was an amazing, amazing man. Uh, he is extremely intelligent. Uh, he is a obviously a well-trained federal. Uh, interrogator. I, I know that by the way he interrogated me because I'm familiar with those techniques. And uh, we, uh, we had some, some amazing talks. And, um, you know, he validated for me that we don't know as much as people think we know. We know damn little. When he says we, you're talking military intelligence. When I say we, I'm talking collectively humanity. Ah, I'm sorry. Okay. Knows so little that, uh, and I think that that lack, I think because we know so little, that helps uh, create that level of distrust. You know, what do you know that we don't know, you know? Right. Right. and um, he's amazing, an, an amazing man. Uh, he is. Uh, uh, I talk to a lot of people, and uh, like yourself, he is uh, intelligence off the charts. And um, you know, he's he's a smart guy. He's the right guy for the right. In, he's he is in the right job. Okay. He, okay. He, is, he is the the right guy to do the job. And I just hope he can get it done. And you told me off the air that he told you. Now, there's some things that he sh- shared with you that you, we obviously can't talk about uh, um, based on him placing confidence in you to not share. Uh, but what what did he allude to in terms, generally speaking, that you and I talked about off air uh, based on everything that's going on right now? Uh, the, the fact that there seems to be that feeling of urgency uh, among everybody, among a lot of people, feeling that, that something is going to happen, and uh, and it, it's going to happen, and it's coming. He, uh, he seems resolute. He said that before. He said, you, you ain't seen nothing yet here. You ain't seen nothing yet. That's okay. right. Yeah, it's words he used, exactly. Hmm. Um, we ain't seen nothing yet. 
Terry Lovelace. You've seen a lot. Um, there's so much we don't know. I'll say it again. I say it all the time and it will continue to uh, bear repeating. If you dare explore the true nature of reality, humility is a universal mandate. Humility. Know what you don't know. Know that you don't know. Be eager to continue to explore. I do feel that we have a birthright to do so. I believe the universe will meet us halfway in the process of this mysterious place we call planet Earth and beyond. And as we close, because we're going to have to do so right now, I am going to thank you once again, Mr. Lovelace, for sharing so much of your intimate journey, for extracting such a universal message as you have in this particular episode to share with us, to remind us, continued Godspeed to you and safety. Keep talking because I think that will help insulate you and your family. Yes. And um, carry on. Keep carrying that banner. Thank you yes. so, so very much for joining us for this part two. You do the same. I'll see you in part three, if not before. All right. That sounds great. Well, let me just say to everyone out there, did this conversation with Terry resonate with uh, at least some of you out there, maybe many of you? who may be experiencers yourself, maybe have gone through somewhat of a, a similar experience or some aspect of this high strangeness, or is this a story that just had you on the edge of your seat all the way through like me? <laughs> well, if so, I do urge you, please like and share this episode with those you think would be interested in becoming familiar with uh, Terry Lovelace's account. Go get that book, Incident at Devil's Den. Uh, please also comment. Your weigh-in is always appreciated. And of course, of course, if you enjoy this show we call Higher Journeys, I invite you to subscribe to our channel for brand new shows each and every week. Speaking of each and every week, just a quick little little uh, message I want to give to you. Next week will be one such exception. We will not be doing a show because I'm going to be taking a little bit of a time out. I will be traveling to Sedona, Arizona. Some of you know I'll be meeting up with some folks in our wonderful community of conscious seekers and researchers like Sonia Grace and Suzanne Ross and Laura Eisenhower, to name a few. I'll be hanging out with them next weekend. And then I'll be back the following week, October 9th, uh, with one of my favorite guests, uh, Cynthia Sue Larson. She'll be joining us to let us know what's going on in her world of reality shifts, a whole other set of high strangeness, but really interesting stuff. I know this is going to be a treat. So make sure you join us then. And once again, I'm going to say, Terry, don't hang up, but I'm going to say thanks once again. And um, may the journey continue, the high journey for you. And I'm also going to say thank you to my journeyers. I love you all so much. Thanks for joining us once again. We'll talk to you next time. Take care. <laughs>